Yes, greetings from the cathedral from Resurrection. It's always fun to come and be out in the diocese and, and see old friends and meet new folks as well. And uh, I, I want to let you know that your beloved rector is still missed. He's still spoken of from time to time back at the cathedral. As recently as, as a month ago, it was my dubious honor to play Bishop Stewart in, in, a, in a skit that we did every year we do a Christmas breakfast, and I was cast to play Bishop Stewart. And I knew as soon as I got this role, I said, oh no, I have to live up to Father Aaron Damiani, who has a legendary, legendary impersonation of, of Bishop Stewart that you should, if you haven't seen it yet, you should ask him for. And, and truly, after it was over, the conclusion was, well, that was pretty good bread, but it wasn't <laughs> as good as Aaron, from, from the bishop's mouth himself, which I fully concur with. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to begin by telling a story that I, I, I didn't ask my wife permission to do, which is always a dangerous thing. Furthermore, it's about a very personal, private thing that happened concerning her, which is also, furthermore, just completely out of my mind. But it's such an incredible story that I'm willing to do this and ask forgiveness later rather than permission ahead of time. So there's my wife right over there, Julie. With Caroline and Teresa, our twins, and little Simon, who's three, and then Toby, who's just turned four months uh, last week. So it was August 24 this year, four months ago, so you already have an idea where this is going, and Julie wakes me up. She says, it's happening. I said, it's, it's 10 days too early. It's, it's, it's not the due date yet. She said, no, I woke up at six this morning, and the contractions are starting. We're in business. So I said, Okay. Now, Simon was our first labor and delivery. We, we had a planned C-section with the girls. So Simon had been our first labor and delivery. It had been a 24-hour from start to finish uh, ordeal. So we thought this will probably go a little bit faster, maybe on the order of 8 to 10 hours at the fastest. So we sat down to breakfast. Julie said, yes, these are definitely contractions that are telling me we're, we're in business. We're, we're moving forward here. I said, okay. Um, I'll, I'll call the doula. So I call the doula, and now it's about 8.30, and she's saying, how's Julie feeling? Describe how quickly the contractions. I said, well, the con contractions are coming fairly quickly, but they're not lasting super long. So I, I don't know what exactly that means. The doula said, well, maybe I should come over. So we, we finished up breakfast. The doula comes over. Now it's about 9.30 in the morning, and Julie's water breaks. And the doula's saying, I think we need to start getting to the hospital. And we were all on the same page, yes. But since we were 10 days ahead of schedule, the bags hadn't been packed. We barely got some folks over to watch the older kids. We were finally ready to go around 10 o'clock, four hours into this thing. And on the way down to the car, I turned to the doula and I said, do you normally follow behind in your own car or do you come in the car with, with the folks? And she said, normally I follow behind afterwards but I think I'm going to come in the car with you guys. So I said, okay, uh, things are about to get interesting. Then she grabbed about 12 towels out of the bathroom, and I said, things are really about to get interesting. We head into the Toyota Sienna and start going down Roosevelt Road. Now, we live in Wheaton, and our destination was Hinsdale, which was 45 minutes away, because that was one of the only hospitals in the area that would do the kind of birth we were hoping for, a natural birth, after We'd, we'd had C-section. She had had. I, I didn't actually have the C-section. 
So we're heading down Roosevelt Road. Julie's actually not even sitting in the seat. She's hands and knees in the middle of the van, and she's, she's saying, I, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. I look at the doula. The doula's staying calm. I say, well, what do we do? The doula said, how do you feel about Elmhurst Memorial? And I thought, that's not in the plan. I, I don't want to do that. As we cross into Lombard, still going down Roosevelt Road, Julie says, this is happening. I can feel the baby's head. And I'm saying, okay, I, I guess we're heading to Elmhurst. About Main Street, Lombard, she says, the baby is coming. I turn to the doula and I say, should we, should we pull over? Should we call the ambulance? And the doula says, you know what? Things usually only go this fast when everything's lined up and, and working really well. So I say, okay, I trust you. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm sure she's done this before. I'm sure she's delivered a baby before. In the car, I'm sure of the hundreds of births she's been in, I'm sure this is not new for her. So I keep driving. I'm just going down Roosevelt Road, trying to stay on the right side of the road. And soon after Main Street and Lombard, the head comes out. And we're still moving down the road. I said, now should I pull over? The dealer said, no, I, I think keep going. If we pull over, we'll get ambulances and, and, and emergency vehicles involved. I'm not sure we want to do that yet. I said, okay, I trust you. You've done this before. I know you have. About four intersections later, she says, all right, Julie, give me one really good push. Out comes the baby. It's a boy. Toby, born at 45 miles an hour, down Roosevelt Road, in motion, on the birth certificate. I write, where was he born? In the van, somewhere between Main Street and Westmore Myers on Roosevelt Road in Lombard. When we pull up to the, to the hospital, and yes, we had decided Elmhurst Memorial, I go straight to the ER, and people start running out to the car. I think my neighbor must have called ahead and alerted them somehow. They're, they're running to the car. How far along is she? I said, pretty far. <laughs> the baby's out. Oh my goodness. They run back. They cut the cord in the car. All told, it's said and done in four and a half hours, much faster than we had anticipated. And throughout the rest of the day, we would turn to each other periodically and just laugh. Can you believe that just happened? That was incredible. I called my mother-in-law to tell her on the phone, and she thought I was lying to her. For five minutes, I said, I'm not lying to you. Have I ever lied to you? There was that one time, but have I ever lied to you? It was an incredible story. And for the next 48 hours, I told it probably a couple dozen times, and I never got tired of telling it. People didn't seem to get tired of hearing it. It's an amazing story. In our passage this morning from Luke, you could think of God as a proud papa who's got his own birth announcement that he wants to make. Even more incredible. Now, I'm pretty sure Mary wasn't going 45 miles an hour down the road to Bethlehem on the donkey, but it was more incredible for other reasons. And what I'd like to do, I know it wasn't printed and we didn't read it, but actually the full story goes back to verse 8. So I'll, I'll read that to catch us up. And then you can follow along when we get to verse 15. Now, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Then the angels went away into heaven. The shepherd said, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that the angels have told us about, that the Lord has made known. And they go, they find Mary and Joseph, and they report all that had been told to them. This story was so incredible. God wanted to tell the story. So he sent angels to the shepherds. Then he sent the shepherds as messengers to Mary and Joseph and to the crowd that had gathered there around the manger. The Lord also gave a sign. He said, through the angel, he said, this will be the clue. This is how you will find this baby that I am speaking of. He'll be wrapped in swaddling cloths. Okay, nothing unusual about that. But he'll be lying in a manger. Okay. The word manger shows up three times in this story. And a lot of people make a lot about it's a manger. God wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't set on a throne. He was set in a manger. And that's all true. But really the point is simply this. The angel is saying, that's how you know this is the baby I'm talking about. In case there had been another baby born in Bethlehem recently, it's the way to identify, do you want to know who is this son that has been born? The one in the manger. So the manger identifies it's Jesus. Now, just as a side note, uh, we can learn from this. You know, God is not opposed to signs. Sometimes we think that signs are a bad thing. We shouldn't look for signs or desire signs or confirmation. Um, and that's because Jesus did have some pretty heated words for those who were demanding signs from him, but it was a little different. In that case, it was the Jewish leaders who were asking for a sign out of skepticism and doubt, not out of faith. And really, they were demanding it from him. They said, unless you give us the sign, we won't believe you. So Jesus said, well, of course, I'm not going to give you a sign that you ask for, because even if I do it, you won't believe me anyway. I've been doing all kinds of signs and wonders that you are not paying attention to. So I'm not going to give you the sign. So yes, Jesus has some hard words to say about those who demand a sign out of skepticism and doubt. But when we take a look at the broad scope of Scripture, we see that God is often initiating. He's the one saying, I will give to you a sign in order to confirm the word that he has spoken. That's what happens here. And what's the result? Look at verse 18. All who heard wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. So you've got a crowd wondering, in awe, something incredible has just happened. You have Mary pondering, contemplating, treasuring up, thinking upon all that has happened. And you have the shepherds returning, praising God, giving glory to him, and thanking him for all that they've got to see. The way this story unfolds here in chapter 2, uh, it has a compounding effect that multiplies the impact of the story. Here's what I mean. So it's not just a story. There's layers of stories here. First, there's the incredible thing that happens. A boy is born. And this we get earlier in the narrative. The first seven verses of chapter 2 is when Luke describes the actual birth of Jesus so that's the thing that happens, the incredible thing that happens. There is now a story to tell. 
But then the angels tell the shepherds about it. So now the shepherds have two stories to tell because they've got a story about when the angels showed up. They were out just doing their work in the darkness, surrounded by the gloom of night, and all of a sudden the glory of heaven showed. That's a story to tell. But now on top of that story, they have the story that the angel told them. A baby's been born, and here's all that the angel told us about the baby. Then when they go to Mary and Joseph, and they see it all just as the angel described, now there are three stories for Mary and Joseph to tell. They have the story, these shepherds came to us, and they can tell all about what the shepherds said of the child. And they can also tell the story about the angels coming to the shepherds, because now that's part of Mary and Joseph's story too. And then, of course, the third story that they have to tell is of the baby being born. Something incredible has happened, and God wants the world to know. He wants the world to know. This is called revelation, when God reveals what he is up to. Now, it's true that he doesn't always say everything of what he's doing all the time, but it's also the case that he doesn't leave us in complete and utter darkness all the time. In fact, what we see is that through the scripture, steadily, is the unfolding of God's plan, or as Paul describes it in Ephesians, the mystery, the plan of the mystery that was hidden in God for ages. God who created all things, but now at this time is being revealed to the holy prophets and the apostles. The appointed time has come. God's revelation is being revealed. This revelation is completely a gift. Look at at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. If the angel had not spoken to the shepherds, they would not have known that anything incredible had happened. That's the gift of revelation. But not only did the angels bring the report of what had happened, but they also spoke to its meaning. Something happened, but then also here is what it means. Here's the significance of it, what this child will mean for you, for all the people. And here is the good news. Here is the meaning of the message that the angels brought. The most incredible event of all human history has just happened, the angel was saying, about two miles that way. God is here. He has come for us. He really has come for us. And that message is for us today as much as it was for the shepherds then. In the lectionary, the the passage, the epistle that's paired with this gospel reading is is from Titus, and I'll I'll read that in, in a little bit because it's a wonderful summary of the good news. A way, of, a way to speak about it from t- Titus 3. But I, I'm wondering, I, obviously I don't know everyone in here this morning. I don't know where you're coming from, what was on your mind as you're walking in the door this morning, what you've been thinking about this week, what you've been pondering or wrestling through in your own life in this season. But I am guessing that there are some of you that have come in today or that through this week you're, you're wondering some pretty basic questions about God. Is he really good? And is he really good for me? Maybe I can believe that he's good, but I don't know that I can believe that he's good for me. And what I, what I want to tell you this morning is that the message of the angel to the shepherds is as true for you 
that it is good news of great joy for all the people, yes, for you this morning. God is good, and he does love us, and he really has come for us. And in some ways, it's just that simple. So here's Titus. Here's Paul summing up the good news. Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That could have been an op-ed in, in the New York Times describing this last year. Let me read it one more time and see if it doesn't resonate. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another and being hated by each other. But when the goodness and loving kindness, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So here we have it. God is kind. He is good. His love is unending. It's unfailing. He is merciful. Some of you, you came today because that's all you needed to hear. You just need to be reminded of that. Yes, he is good. It is good news because he is a good God. And in his loving kindness, he has saved us, not because we were deserving of it, not because we were worthy, but simply as his merciful gift. According to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his gift of grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So if you're ever needing a quick summary of the good news, Titus 3, 3 to 7. Might want to memorize it, or at least memorize where it is. So God is here. He has come for us. At last, he really has come. And what the angel says to the shepherds in verse 11, so not, not printed in your bulletin, but the angel, this is the birth announcement. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's a lot that is packed into that little statement. He's saying that he's come to save us and deliver us. By calling him Christ or the Messiah, he's saying he's the anointed king, the awaited one. And by calling him the Lord, the angel is saying something truly incredible and remarkable. He's saying that this baby is none other than Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Whenever they would write the Lord, meaning the God of Israel, they would use the word kurios. That's the same word in the New Testament that is translated Lord. And sometimes it does simply mean master or a person of, of high uh, repute. But also it is used in specific times to refer to the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the God of Israel. And there's good reason to believe that that's exactly what Luke is doing here and what the angel is saying. Because even in just one and a half chapters of Luke, 
Not, a much, not much time has passed in the story so far, and yet in these one and a half chapters, Luke has used that word kurios over 20 times to refer to the Lord. So by saying this baby is the Lord, he's saying something remarkable. And earlier when the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah and said, you will have a son, your son will be John, who will be John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before the Lord, before he comes. He's saying the same thing, that God himself is coming, the Lord is coming. This is beyond what anyone was expecting at this time. Now to be sure, Messianic expectation was high. People were looking for, waiting, hoping, desperate for a Messiah. Okay, Christmas was on Monday. So think of children anticipating, excited, eager for Christmas. But now imagine that Christmas hasn't come for several centuries. And then multiply that by a thousand just for good measure. And you have some idea of the almost desperate expectation and anticipation that the people of Israel had waiting for the Messiah. That's a lot of pent-up expectation. And the Hebrew prophets for centuries had been teaching Israel to hope for deliverance. They proclaimed that saviors and deliverers would come. They even declared that God himself would come. So Isaiah says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense, which is the vindication or the justice of God. He will come and save you. Or later, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord, Yahweh, comes with might, and his arm rules for him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. The prophet spoke of a new move of God that would sweep the earth, like when God rescued his people out of Egypt, or when he brought them back from the Babylonian captivity. Something of that magnitude was coming, and the Messiah was the one to bring it. But in all of this messianic expectation, almost no one had anticipated that God himself would really come. Nobody had even guessed what God had in store. What was that plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Anyone who envisioned saviors or deliverers or even the Messiah himself had almost certainly envisioned a human being, merely a human being, a man only, and not God himself. When the prophets spoke of God showing up, the people of Israel would imagine that as a metaphor. God the shepherd of Israel? Sure, that's been said before. But without God being a flesh and blood human shepherd, it's a metaphor. Or saying that God will show up with power to deliver his people? Yes, he's done that before. He showed up in Egypt and with signs and wonders He showed his mighty power and he delivered the people. Yeah, God came then. He will come in the same way. That's what it means, they would have thought. And they would think he'll raise up a leader, someone like a new Moses or a new David, who will lead Israel and represent God to the world. But not as if God himself would be the new Moses or the new David. That's impossible. That would mean that God would be a human being. Divine intervention, sure, yes. Divine incarnation, impossible, incredible. But that is the incredible thing that the angel was sent to announce to the shepherds. And that the shepherds announced to Mary and to Joseph, which confirmed the word that Gabriel had spoken to Mary earlier. 
that her son would sit on David's throne and rule forever, which no mere human being could do, that he would be called the son of the most high and indeed the son of God. This is the incredible story. This is the good news. And during this season of the Christian year, during Christmas tide, these 12 days of Christmas, the lectionary readings and the focus is especially on this teaching of the church called the incarnation, that God became human. C.S. Lewis called it the grand and central miracle of the Christian faith, from which all other miracles flowed. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. Not 50% God and 50% human. Not two different people, but fully God, fully human in one person, one being. And if that idea is somewhat uh, stale for you, you've heard that before, the idea, uh, you've gotten used to it, then we should recall that this Teaching and this claim is utterly unique among the religious claims of the world. There's nothing like it in all the other religions. The polytheistic religions where there is some idea of, of God's descending and becoming human, it's for a time and it's different because they're polytheistic. Um, and those religions like Hinduism where there is a sort of one creator God behind the pantheon of other gods, that one creator God never fully becomes human being. Of course, in the monotheistic faiths such as Judaism and Islam, this is utterly scandalous, completely blasphemous. And for a Jew or a Muslim to decide to follow Jesus, this is the final and great obstacle, the thing that the Lord himself has to reveal to them in order for them to say, yes, I can follow Jesus, to say that God became human and that Jesus Christ is God. That is something that is completely scandalous utterly blasphemous to any Jew or Muslim. But for Christians, the grand and central miracle of the faith. And what it means for us is that everything that there is to know about God is now fully revealed in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. It also means that everything that there is to know about the meaning and purpose of human life and existence that's also found in Jesus. Your purpose, what you're here for, what it means to be human, you see it in him. And through him we come to know that the nature of God is self-giving love and that the true purpose of every human being is the same, self-giving love. And more than just know about it or see it from afar, Part of the mystery of the incarnation is that God has become one of us so that we might actually share and participate in that life, to participate in the eternal life and the love of God that has existed from before all time. All of this is contained in that packed and pithy birth announcement from the angel to the shepherd. There's a little prayer when uh, at a table when the deacon pours the water into the wine. There's a prayer that's not always said and sometimes rarely heard, but it's simply this. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in his divinity who humbled himself to share in our humanity. 
So by God sharing in our humanity, he has invited us to share in his divinity. This is the mystery of the incarnation. And whether the shepherds fully grasped all of this at the time is doubtful, but one thing was for sure, they knew something incredible had just happened, and they went quickly. It says, they made haste to go to Bethlehem. You'll notice that the angel never actually tells them to go. The angel never commands them, go to Bethlehem and see this thing. The angel just assumes you're going to go. Sort of like when my college roommate came into the door one day shouting and screaming hysterically. He was so excited. He said, something is happening. There are strange sights and sounds in the sky to the south. Aliens are landing like a couple blocks from here. And he was serious. And we were like, "What, John, what are you talking about? But of course, what did we do? We went to go see this thing that had happened. Now, it turned out that it was just a downed power line that was still live and shooting 20 feet of electrical flame high into the air and making this huge, like, buzzing sound. But we went to go see it. We were hoping for something a little more spectacular than we got. Uh, the shepherds, however, were not disappointed. It was more spectacular than they could have hoped for. So what does this mean for our lives today? Well, the angel was a messenger to the shepherds. The angel also gave to the shepherds a sign, pointing them to Jesus. Then the shepherds became messengers. And in a way, the shepherds were themselves a sign confirming what God had spoken to Mary and Joseph previous to that. So what does God want for us? He wants us to be messengers and signs, messengers of good news and signs pointing to Jesus. Because there are many, like the shepherds before the angel came, they don't know about this thing that has happened, that God has come to earth to save us. They certainly don't know what that means or why it matters for them. They don't know what salvation is or what it is that they need saving from. If they believe in a God, they, they might think that he loves them, but they're confused when they find out that he's also their king. In short, people don't know the real Jesus oftentimes until they see him in a true follower of Jesus. People won't see or know Jesus as he really is until they see him in you. So let's talk about being messengers for a little bit. Bringing this good news to others. Now, I know when it, whenever you talk about the word evangelism or sharing the good news, th there can be baggage that people have or some nervousness. We get this idea that I have to memorize a certain uh, you know, formula or, or have a conversation where I try to get somebody to some point where they say some kind of thing. And we think that's what evangelism is. Now, there's something to learning Four spiritual laws or being able to walk someone through the Romans of Ro Romans Road, that's, that's not all bad. But I was greatly helped when I realized that oftentimes sharing the good news is nothing more uh, complicated than just telling the story of what God has done for you. It's like in Mark 5 when Jesus sets the, the garrison demoniac free. This is the man who had a legion of demons and he set him free. And afterwards, the man comes running up to Jesus as Jesus is getting in the boat, and he says, let me follow you. And what does Jesus say to him? No, but go back to your hometown and tell them all 
of what God has done for you. Just tell people what God has done for you. Most people, most of you have a story to tell. It could be a story of God's mercy and forgiveness that it was when you realized what the gospel was for the first time or at a real deep level. Or maybe it was a story of God's miraculous provision for you. It doesn't matter if it was 20 years ago. That's your story to tell. Be ready to tell it. Um, I, I think I may have even shared briefly my own story here before because it's my story that I have to tell, the one I go back to when I don't know what else to tell. It happened when I was a young man and I had a season of disobedience to the Lord. It's not even that I gave up on my faith and was walking away and living completely for myself. What really was uh, difficult about it afterwards was I realized I was still saying I was a Christian. I was even still saying I want to do ministry and yet I was clearly living a double life. I was making decisions and doing things that were contrary to God's will, contrary to what he teaches in the scriptures. And deep down inside, I knew it, but I lived that double life for a time. And when the Lord revealed to me and kind of brought it home, this is what you're doing, and I was humbled, and I saw it for what it was, I was utterly broken. And because of the, the hypocrisy, the kind of two-faced nature of the life that I've been living, I thought for sure I'm disqualified from ever being a minister of the gospel. There's no way God could use me now. And I wasn't even that sure that he really would forgive me. And I remember telling a friend at that time, I feel like I'm this, this bug that's wrapped up in a spider's web just waiting to be devoured. A few days later, somebody said, there's a prayer meeting. Do you want to go? I said, sure, I, I could use prayer right now. And I, I show up in this home and they're practicing a kind of prayer that's called listening prayer, or I would say it's, it's prophetic prayer. And they said, does anybody need prayer right now? And I raised my hand. I said, yeah, I, I do. And two of the leaders came over, and knowing nothing of my story or what, where I was coming from, knowing nothing of what I had said to this friend just a few days earlier about being caught up in this spider web, after about a minute of just listening, the first prayer minister says, I have a picture in my imagination of, of your heart and it's encased in a cobweb, spider web. And I knew immediately, yes, that's exactly where I am. And she said, now I see the finger of God going around the outside of your heart and gently rubbing away that cobweb. And in that moment, God was ministering to me, you know, you really are forgiven. I really meant it when I said it. I have forgiven you. Even your hypocrisy. And that's my story. When I was at that place of brokenness and wondering, could I really be forgiven? That's when the gospel became real for me. And I want to tell you something. Just a couple of weeks ago, my neighbor came to our Lessons and Carol service that we had at Resurrection. Um, I invited him, and, and he, he came. I said, well, let's go grab a bite to eat afterwards. So we're having a bite to eat afterwards, and he was in a place where he was asking a lot of questions about God and faith and told me about his upbringing in the Methodist church. So we were having a religious conversation. I was able to tell him lots of wonderful, true things about God, that God loved him and he wanted to forgive him and all of that. But you want to know the part of the story that my neighbor's eyes were wide-eyed and listening when I told the story that I told you just now in a little bit fuller detail. That was my story to tell. I shared it with him, and that's when he said, after that he said, so 
tell me, what does it mean for you in your everyday life that you follow Jesus? Because after I told that story, he wanted to know. So sometimes sharing the good news, bringing the good news to others is no more complicated than simply saying, here's what God has done for me. It could be what God is doing for you in your life right now, or it could be that story from 20 years ago that is still your gospel story. So he's called us to be messengers, but he's also called us to be a sign. Like the manger, which we said earlier, the manger is what identified where Jesus was. Well, guess what? You're the manger. The world wants to know, where is Jesus? And God wants to point to you and say, that's, that's the manger right there. You want to meet Jesus? You want to find Jesus? Go to my people. You'll see him in my people. You are meant to be a sign pointing others to Jesus. You are where Jesus is to be found. And indeed, this is the flip side of the mystery of the incarnation, that because God has become human, now we are sharing in his divine life. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And now that Jesus is ascended and he's with the Father in heaven, do you want to know something amazing? Where is the embodied flesh and blood presence of God in the world right now? It's in you and me. It's in the church. That's where God is embodied in the world right now. That's the other side to the mystery of the incarnation. So we say that as Jesus was the sacrament, the sign pointing to the Father, now the church is the sacrament pointing the world to Jesus. Do you want to know where Jesus is? Do you want to know what he looks like? Find somebody who loves him and is following him. That's you. And he means for your life to be a sign. If we're to bring the good news as messengers, we are to be the good news to the people in our lives as a signpost saying, here's what Jesus looks like. So I'll go back to that Titus passage. Remember that summary of the good news. But here's the amazing thing. After Paul says all of that about the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appearing and saving us, Right after that, he says, the saying is trustworthy, and now I want you to insist on these things, he's telling this to Titus, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So now that we've come to believe in the good news, now we devote ourselves to good works, to show the world, as Jesus said, let your light shine before all men, that they may see your good works and glorify your your Father in heaven. So we're to be messengers of the good news, to bring the good news. We're to be signs pointing to Jesus. We are to be that sign saying, do you want to know where Jesus is? Do you want to know what he's like? Look at my life. Let's pray for the grace to be that. Lord, I, I pray for every brother and sister here, those who have believed the good news. First, I pray that you would renew us in our joy that we would receive this good news that we've heard many times before, that we would receive it now with, with a freshness, and that you would embed and indeed embody this good news in our lives so that by our words and by our deeds, throughout every day, we are bringing the message of your good news to the world around us, and we are being that sign. We are being good news to those who are around us. Give us your Holy Spirit.
that we may be faithful in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.